I'm Brian Fierst. And I'm Rebecca Caho. And today we have with us our volunteer producer, Rebecca Nolan. Hi. You are, of course, listening to Rural Roots. And this is a Harris Center show that asks, what is rural in the 21st century? And in this episode, we're going to take a look at the fashion industry, uh, but not what's happening in Paris, Milan, and New York City. We're taking a look at fashion in rural Canada. I kind of feel I have to come clean here. This was one episode I thought I'm not going to be terribly excited about. How come? Well, as long as you have blue jeans, a plaid shirt, good pair of boots, what more do you need? Yes, and uh, basically he's just described what he's wearing (laughs) at this very moment, and in fact, pretty much every day. (laughs) Right. And the other thing is that Edna Mode from The Incredible Sanai feel exactly the same about the fashion scene. Weren't you just in the news, some show in Prague, Prague? Milan, darling, Milan. Supermodels. Ha! I think super about them, spoiled, stupid little stick figures with poofy lips who think only about themselves. Well, <laughs> we're not going to Milan today. We're heading to Nelson, B.C. And then we're going to go all the way up north to Akalit in Nunavut. And that's what I was going to say. After listening to the interviews for this episode... It was fascinating to hear how fashion industry provides everything from creative outlet to small manufacturing opportunities, but it also connects people to the cultural connection they have to the place they're from. Uh, So where are we going first? Let's head to Nelson. I'm going to take you on a tour of a hat factory called Lily and Caho. Caho, like Rebecca Caho, like you? Well, yes. You know... It seems like we have this inexhaustible well of coho stories. There must be like a million cohos out there. There aren't really a whole lot of cohos. However, most of the ones that I know are doing stuff in rural places. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was what we are about to hear. Uh, I'm going to take you on a six-minute tour of the Lillian Coho Hat Factory operation in Nelson, B.C. It's going to give you a taste of what they're doing on a daily basis and what a fairly successful and long, long-running fashion industry player in a very small place actually looks like. We are right now in Liz's part of her studio where she basically starts out with the designs on her table and they make everything from scratch, from patterns to the hats themselves. Okay, and so I can see uh, many, many, many hats up hanging up on the walls, and I can also see uh, big rolls of like tweed fabrics and uh, nice, beautiful colored fabrics. Where, where does the fabric come from? Um, they order it from all over. Uh, they have suppliers in North America, and sometimes stuff comes from Europe also. Just depends. Whatever she sees and she likes, she usually gets it, no matter where it's from. <laughs> okay, let's go on in and see what we can find. These are all the samples for 2017. It's just completed. We always work basically a year ahead. Right. And they start selling them a year ahead also. So these are, are they, and they're spring and summer, I think, Yeah, we do two seasons. We do spring, summer, and then fall, winter. And we also started doing men's line as of this fall. Cool. Yeah. I'll take you into Maureen. Well, I'm a fabric cutter. Uh, one of them, Sharon is the other, and she's also production manager, and she's in Montreal with Liz. Um, I do hand cutting, but I also do machine cutting um, when there's volume, uh, and try to fit pattern pieces on to make the best use of the fabric. How long have you been doing this? 
13 years. Yeah. <laughs> and were you working in textile? You must have, you, were, you had a great I, experience. Um, just home sewing for my kids. Really? Yep. Okay, yep. and that was in Nelson, like that you've been here for a little while too? Um, yes, in the area, in the Kootenays, in the West Kootenays for 40 something years. Yeah. Great. Okay, cool. I think we're going to move to the next spot. So, can you just tell me what you're doing? Sure. Uh, name my name is Jen. I'm a seamstress and I put the hats together so they're already all cut out and put into bundles um, by size and by hat um, and we follow samples and we put all the pieces together from beginning to end um, uh, yeah and make sure that everything's done properly. Oh I used to work in computers really? um, and then that was bored me to tears <laughs> and so <laughs> made lots of money but it was, uh, so I went to the textiles program here at KSA in town a few years ago, and, and that's how I got into sewing. Uh. Kelly McCordoff. I just started here a few months ago, so I'm doing some basic stuff like linings for hats and ear cuffs and kind of just keeping piles maintained for like pieces for the bigger hats. I went to the art school in Calgary for four years. I went to ACAT and I got my textiles, um, fine arts degree there. And then I took a course here afterward, after I heard how good KSA was through the other places that I've been. I took like a pattern draping course and I just kind of realized after whatever, I guess eight years of not sewing that I really do need to sew on a daily basis. So yeah. <laughs> this is kind of just like a financial <laughs> supplement to that desire. <laughs> I got the degree because I was I loved sewing I would spend like my lunch hours and after school sewing in high school and I didn't think I was like oh I thought I'd do something academic I had no idea about what was available out there so when my aunt was like well why don't you just go to art school I was like what she's like yeah you can sew you can get a degree I was like oh my gosh and I just like 17 at the time I assumed that there was a fashion element in any kind of textile program and so I was kind of like I was so surprised that you didn't you could get a textile degree without like knowing color theory or knowing how to sew and so when I got there I was already like kind of two years in before I realized that I was like I want to know how to make patterns and I wanted a fashion element but I also didn't go to fashion school on purpose because I don't like the competitive spirit that's there so I guess I was trying to do a middle road but ended up they are really distinct I feel and KSA actually I think is pretty good between the two because they do all the things I learned in Calgary in that degree program but they also have like pattern development which is cool because it's just like pretty much the tinge of fashion that I needed in the program that I actually took in Calgary. Right. Anyone I know in Nelson I don't think there really is so much competition because everyone's doing something so different like everyone's style is distinct enough that it's not like and Nelson's so small that thank god that it's like that because yeah, <laughs> yeah. if there was two people doing the same thing there just wouldn't be room for it. Right there would be no market. Yeah, yeah. right. We just come through uh, a couple of different stations. There are a bunch of different sewing machines, industrial sewing machines, and then there's a wall of very colorful thread. And now I'm going to walk into the next section, and I think this must be where the shipping and final, yeah. final so stuff this happens. Is where <laughs> we store the hats until they're ready to ship. We mainly do wholesale mm. to our retailers, and we encourage people to buy through our retailers because right. that's just kind of our business model. We make mass amounts of hats, and then this is where they stage for shipping. And as the orders come through, we ship by date, and I. I'm the one who packs them all up and cleans them and sends them out the door. Right. Uh, what's the furthest away that you send hats? Uh, we do all of North America. Right. 
So um, Liz used to send to Korea, I believe she had a, uh, they don't do that anymore. That mm. was a few years ago. I think it was too much of a pain. Right. <laughs> I'd say there's at least 20,000 hats that go through here, which is crazy to me. <laughs> it's just crazy to me. <laughs> and I'd also like to just mention that uh, I couldn't have done the tour without Sandra Becker, who uh, was the person guiding me through the facility, but also another relative. Really? <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize that. <laughs> she is Liz's daughter-in-law. Oh, I had no idea. Uh-huh. Uh, so that was very neat. Uh, I really like how this operation links to everything from education to community development. Yeah. Um, and these kinds of small manufacturing industries can be a, a really large opportunity for some rural areas. So Liz Cahoe, who is my aunt and is the Cahoe of Lillian Cahoe, is one of the co-authors of the West Kootenai Manufacturing Study. And it was done last year, and it looked at a lot of the issues that need to be indre- addressed in order for that sector to grow. And you got a chance to interview her while you were there, right? Actually, it wasn't while I was there. Um, She, ridiculously, was in Montreal (laughs) for the week while I was in Nelson, B.C. Yeah, so I came all the way from Newfoundland, and she wasn't there. (laughs) Before we go to that interview, um, tell us a bit about Nelson. We were there in September last year, and it's quite a small place. Yeah, so it's got about 10,000 people. But it also has a catchment area that actually brings that number up to 30,000 or 40,000. It's pretty remote. It's really, it's nestled in the mountains in, south, in, in southeastern BC. And there is a small regional airport, Castlegar. But you can imagine with the weather and with the geographic conditions, the flights are not super reliable. And in fact, sometimes the, the airport is lovingly referred to as Castlegar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> several people, when I told them I'm flying into Castlegar, uh, they would say, oh, good luck, you know, who knows if you're going to make it. And, um, but that must be such a challenge for somebody trying to operate a manufacturing business with a product that sells outside of the region. Yeah, it is. And Liz talked about that. However, she also said that there are advantages to being located in a rural place. It does take longer to get our goods here. It costs more. It takes longer to get things out of here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have overnight shipping in any, any, there is no, it's not possible to have overnight shipping anywhere from here, um, which people just take for granted. If you're in a city, you just, you can have it the next day. Um, I think uh, rural people actually, it businesses, are responsive in a different way than through a system. Mm. If you have, maybe we don't buy the same software or hook into the same networks always that other larger businesses do, we can have that more personal responsiveness that does actually get the job done. You know, it's really great what people can do when you just ask them. Um, But let's back up. How did your aunt start to run a hat business? Well, she's actually been at it for a long time. Uh, The business itself is 25 years or more. But she's also been making things since she was a kid, 11 years old. I have beautiful, beautiful handmade vintage dresses that she made in high school that I greedily got my fingers on (laughs) and that are beautiful. So she's been making this stuff. She has been a, a creator and a maker forever. Eventually she finished finished the design program at Ryerson University and she just never looked back. Um, and as for Nelson, she ended up there and it just felt like a special 
place and it had some unique assets too. We have um, a fairly individual design climate, I think. There are a lot of people here who make things, um, operate businesses. I think of three or four right away who are uh, doing uh, full lines like twice a year and they sell online primarily or they have an outlet like a retail store in town. And they may have a few wholesale clients, but they're generally direct to customer. And they are often working in um, Jersey and doing doing things like pen printing, particularly. Uh, I see that quite a bit. We also have a design, a fashion, uh, well, a textiles program here. And that assists people to understand, to introduce them to dyeing, weaving, printing, some pattern making uh, construction. It's a very short course. It's just a, a generally one year with another six or eight month um, studio year after, which is self-directed with assistance from the instructors. So it's not as full a training as some of the larger schools, but it introduces a lot of people to how to how to get something going. And I think that it does affect that we have a lot of people involved in and design in very small production or they spend some time doing it, doing it here in town. It's interesting how strongly she feels about the importance of the school in Nelson. Does she teach? Uh, she provides a fair bit of mentoring, but there are challenges with that. It's one thing to, to mentor and train, and we've done quite a bit of training from time to time with various people, and yet it's expensive. So yeah. it's, it, we're trying to find this balance where we are giving and giving enough that it remains interesting and continues to be interesting, as well as it's not a cost, it's, there's a benefit to both. Yeah. And I see that, that in the future, as even in my own role, uh, that I would like to have this business, have that as one of its components that's actually fulfilled mm. on an ongoing basis. Yeah, and we should also remember what she's doing it's very much a craft in the old-fashioned sense of the word, as much as it is also this um, creative output and this philosophical approach to some degree. It's an aesthetic. It covers all of these bases, but at the root, there's also this really specific way of doing things and with your hands and, and doing it well. So teaching that craft is hard. Bring it into schools at an earlier age and talk about what's good about it, how much fun it can be, how mm. much of a challenge it can be. Because if you talk to my sewers, you did, yeah. um, It's it takes a long time to learn what they know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anna has been here 19 years almost. She has so much knowledge, so much practice. And for her, it's second nature. Um, but someone, and we've been through many situations where we're training and we're just figuring out how to train, which seems funny that takes that long, but that's, that's the way it is for us. Um, we have realized we have to introduce things very slowly, mm-hmm. much more slowly than we thought, and give that person time, you know, to to really absorb and and um, have that become part of them. And there's a lot of memory also, and maybe not every manufacturing job is that way, but in our case, yeah, there's a lot of memory involved, a lot of memory of process in uh, what's the next step, which is the mental part, and then there's the memory of the hands and the eye knowing that you got it right. That's really interesting. And I love how keeping it small scale embedded in that community allows for developing those skills. And I mean, we heard from her employees that 
they really enjoy working there because it allows them to kind of grow. And I mean, it is a factory. It really is. You know, it, the process follows, you know, that's what we think of as a factory. But in terms of the personal relationships and the personal role that each of the employees plays in the creation of one of these beautiful hats, I think she would probably agree too. Like sometimes people undersell what a, what working in, in a manufacturing can be. We've got this idea of it being this sort of cold, mechanistic sort of a job and it's absolutely not that in this situation and she also sees a lot of potential in terms of what's possible especially when she's talking about expanding the educational opportunities for people who are interested in getting into this stuff. Sharon and I talk frequently um, she was also engaged in the manufacturing study about what great things we could do here and how much more we could do in regards to education. We would at the current Time. We've both done some, uh, worked a little bit at the school, so we feel that we would love to be more involved with the school and bring a more of a manufacturing edge to that. It, having said that, I know that there's a lot to learn in that short time that that one-year course offers. So, mm. again, when the, the second-year studios are created now, we may find a way that we can work with the school because I think that that would help those people that are graduating right. to do their own businesses or it would really assist us to to develop our own mentoring programs that could work with the school and not to overly benefit one or the other but I think that the students would learn a lot and some of them might be interested in even staying with us because this business is evolving and it can evolve there's a lot more stuff that could happen here mm-hmm. we're excited about doing some codes and yet you need you need the time to do it um, there's there's just a lot there's a lot here that could grow and we could bring in some more technology uh, that would assist to um, in growth mm-hmm. and make things interesting she has mentioned the manufacturing study what was all that about Well, uh, that was a survey of manufacturers in the region, and it outlined some of the concerns and the potential solutions to those concerns. We'll post a link to that report on the Rural Roots website, uh, and I'll let Liz tell us a little bit more about it. The report was, I think it was initiated by talking about um, labor, you know, labor needs for manufacturing in this area, and it to me brought to light clearly at some point that nobody thinks about manufacturing here. I mean, in general, it's just not what one comes to, what comes to mind when you think of economic drivers for this area. And certainly the first one now is tourism. It used to be mining and forestry. uh, And both of those still exist, uh, but not to the same degree. So it's, um, I think what happened was we were kind of talking one day about how the Kootenai Lake uh, Tourism Board, and that's not the right name for it, but has been incredibly successful. And then we are we are a really lovely tourist destination, mm-hmm. and we experience that. And that has been a, a concerted and very directed effort over the last few years. And it just occurred, well, if if they can do that, why are we not then doing some kind of marketing and presenting the case for manufacturing, mm-hmm. that it's actually an interesting industry. And so, and back to tourism, it, it, there, there are tourism 
courses, you know, at Selkirk College uh, to introduce people into the industry of tourism and, and ways, and there's lots of information for hoteliers and um, bed and breakfast people and restaurants to continue to improve to make that a, a good industry. So why not do it with manufacturing? And one of the first things that came to mind was that people don't look at manufacturing in a good light. Mm. In It's considered uh, repetitive and boring, low skill. And then they also don't think about it actually being here in this area. But in fact, there were, I think it turned out, 60 or so manufacturers in the area. And we are all experiencing that there's not a strong desire for people to become employed in this area. What we're trying to get across is there's a lot of satisfaction to be gained from making things. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly where my life is. I couldn't imagine doing something that involved essays or paper pushing or reports or accounting or I don't know any number of things that are great, and but not for me. I love to be creating. So what does she see as the first step to advance the manufacturing sector in, in that region? Well, as she said, she believes a lot of it has to do with explaining <clears throat> what those kind of careers actually look like. And I shouldn't just say careers she's or, or employment. It's about careers. She, she used the word entrepreneur a whole bunch of times, too. The fact is this isn't just <laughs> becoming some cog in the wheel. There are meaningful jobs, and there's also huge opportunity for creating your own job. So, yeah, I think she's really quite passionate about dispelling some of the rumors and uh, sort of changing how people look at manufacturing in her region. Initially, I think that you're still what has to be gotten over is the idea that manufacturing is uh, takes the fun out of it, and it, and it doesn't. <laughs> it makes so many things possible. I get to travel frequently to cities I, uh, I can... Um, invest in things if I want to. I um, can try different, you know, we have the luxury of having many people to do things. I, I remember being on my own or being with just another person working and that's always more than you can possibly manage to get to. That's really interesting. So how does she see herself fitting into the national and global fashion industry? Because it's, it is so global. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's quite different than you know, your typical sweatshop where most of our clothes is made. Yeah, and uh, the quality of what she's making, I don't know that I've properly explained that. These hats are entirely handmade, and they're made out of very, very beautiful, high-quality fabrics. This is not the kind of stuff you get off uh, at your local department store. It's very unique, and uh, as she said, she makes new lines every year and she's very much always watching the global fashion industry uh, and making these beautiful things so anyways in terms of how she fits in when compared to you know what you're getting from the rack at walmart um, i asked her about that and in many ways she believes there's actually advantage in being small well actually when i started there still was more of an industry in canada Mm. and that's that's been probably the biggest transformation that of course we know that most clothes are not made in Canada where they you know Montreal in 1990 was still a very vibrant very very vibrant textile and apparel industry and it had 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 that industry and so did Toronto and Winnipeg uh, Vancouver was actually just kind of beginning I think what's happened of course that's changed all of that but it what it's done is it made has made more prominent the existence of smaller designers 
mm-hmm. and makers like myself who now are filling a particular need and and a desire from the population and from themselves to do things that are closer closer to home. I think also even stores do like if it fits their if it fits their demographic, they do like to buy things made in Canada because they are much more able to restock, for instance. Uh, if things are going quickly, they can reorder. And we that's what we do. We, we fill orders. We turn around very quickly to fill orders, whereas if you're buying generally buying goods offshore, because of the time difference and the, the amount of planning and you know forward thinking required, you, you don't get that same ability to reorder and to have that responsiveness. That's where we can fill a need. That's really interesting. How does she, because her market extends way beyond mm-hmm. Nelson's immediate region, right? Yeah. How does she market her products? Well, there's a lot to it. And of course, being from a place like Nelson, marketing is key to getting her products out there. And actually, she uh, can't say enough about the role that her agent plays in that process. The other part that I think is totally essential for any manufacturing business in the city or not is uh, agent representation because that that is the connection to the retail store and I have done that in in the 90s driven to Calgary to Vancouver to Seattle to try you know to attend shows I've been in Chicago attending wholesale shows you don't get much because you have the stores are very busy Mm-hmm. When they go to a show, and when they're in their own, when a store owner is in their own store, and, and we are really dealing with independents, we are not dealing with department stores. So, generally, the person who owns the store is the buyer. Only a few cases where that's not. Right. They have limited time, mm-hmm. and they don't want to make mistakes. Of course, they work. So they are really happy to work with an agent that they feel understands what their business is about and has more than one supplier to show them and also can vouch for the reliability of the supplier. Right. So you, you're having to, so it's the, it's the um, reliability of your agent that you're riding on in mm-hmm. some ways mm-hmm. and the, the, the business they've been able to build. That's really interesting. Especially, and the other thing I was thinking about She's in Nelson, and there is several of these small, creative, fashion-based yeah, companies. More than several. It's yeah. a it's a pretty thriving little sub industry in Nelson. And actually, when I was there, I asked Liz, "Who else should I be checking out?" I knew that we were looking at doing the episode that would look at fashion, and she gave me a number of different suggestions. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't almost feel like a true competition. Oh, no. And they really are doing different things and they have different approaches. And uh, probably a really good example of that is um, Tracy Fillion, who Liz sort of directed me to. Um, her line is called We Are Stories. She makes beautiful clothes. <laughs> I came back with a new shirt and I've ordered another one since. Um, I pretty much saved my pennies to send to Nelson, BC these days. Um, she makes gorgeous, uh, sort of eat loose, breezy, fine fabrics like linens, nice cottons, just really gorgeous casual stuff that you can wear um, and that you feel like a million bucks when you put on. And she, uh, she's actually taking sort of interesting approaches to how she's doing business too. 
So it's probably best for me to just let Tracy tell you how it all began. Essentially was a reaction to I needed a new job and I was really interested in doing something creative and doing something with my hands and it was around the time when Etsy was getting going and there was this real interest in the handmade movement and handmade craft. So I, it was really rough what I started out with. Like I started out just, I taught myself at a screen print, which was hard to teach myself. <laughs> but, um, and then I basically was just screen printing and altering American Apparel t-shirts and it started that way. And they were rough, but people were supporting it. People yeah. were into it because it was a handmade looking piece. So I started from there and then I just started taking some sewing classes and pattern drafting classes and just really trying to refine my skills. And then, yeah, it just kind of start, went from there. So I feel like it's important for me to mention that when I went to see Tracy, uh, I was not heading to a storefront. She, <laughs> she actually was selling her beautiful products in an Airstream, a vintage Airstream trailer located. I love yeah. that. <laughs> beautiful silver, uh, polished up. And I mean, she had the, the inside gorgeous. It was a sort of light filled, full of beautiful items, clean and surprisingly uncrowded for a trailer. <laughs> And she was set up outside of the bustling um, grocery co-op in Nelson. Uh, and she was, uh, she was uh, you know, folding things and getting things ready for the day when I dropped by to chat with her. And I thought that was really interesting. And, and it made me say, okay, so she can pick up and go. She, she did mention that sometimes she actually takes the Airstream on the road. But I suspected that online was probably a pretty large portion of what she was doing. Uh, and that was true. She mentioned Etsy, which is an online um, sort of maker retailing space. They sell vintage stuff as well. Um, and it's gotten to be quite, quite big compared to where it was years back. Um, but she talked about how that was kind of a first step for her in terms of getting onto the Internet and extending her reach beyond the boundaries of Nelson. They were, they basically, I think, were responsible for making, creating this awareness around handmade and craft and creating businesses for people like myself and just made it a really supportive environment and just made it really easy they also made it very easy to just post stuff and they didn't charge very much and then it would just be this broad audience that it would be accessible to so yeah I think in the beginning it did, it was really helpful I'm I haven't been into using it as much anymore but I still see the value in it. Yeah, and actually when she says she doesn't use it as much anymore, she's expanded quite broadly in terms of what she's doing herself. She has a really nice website. And I also, of course, am following her on both Facebook and Instagram. And she uses that. And it's a way for her to um, be part of the day of folks like me living thousands and thousands of kilometers away, which really wouldn't have been a possibility for a rural business a rural-based business like hers, even 15 years ago. Yeah, and the other thing that she talked about, um, you said, is how Nelson is a special place. Like, they tried to do a super Walmart here, and everyone protested, and they were shut down immediately. And same with a McDonald's and, mm -hmm. you know, any other sort of big box brand or, yeah, they just, they're not welcome here. So that's also why little businesses like myself mm -hmm. and creatives are just, like, drawn to this area is because we're not surrounded by that. Mm -hmm. That has a lot to do with it. Yeah, I, I really like how all of these things, mentoring, education, small manufacturing, entrepreneurship, international markets, online retail, 
and also protection of certain kinds of mm -hmm. places. Yeah. All kind of came together in a rural and relatively remote area such as Nelson. Yeah. And I think that that's something that they would all agree. Nelson was an important feature in the story of each. Um, and I don't think any of them ever suggested that it couldn't happen anywhere else. But it was easier making these things happen in a place like Nelson. Yeah, and it could happen with other industries as well. Let's stick with fashion for now. Already. Uh, Rebecca Nolan, you are going to take us north with the story you collected. Yeah, I talked with a lady called Nicole Kampog. She's a designer who lives up in a Iqaluit in Nunavut. Um, she has this online business called EMB Artisan that she runs with her husband. And they specialize in shoes and jewelry and all these amazing things that are all made out of wildly sourced materials. Wow. And so when we say wildly sourced, we're saying furs, skins, antlers that probably aren't too common to find in urban areas, but that are actually quite readily available in a place like Iqaluit. Yeah. How did they get to start their business? Well, the way that Nicole describes it makes it seem like it was just kind of always in her blood. It was something she was born to do. We make our own clothes for warmth, right? Because it's such a harsh climate that we can't um, necessarily rely on or even sometimes afford um, store-bought clothes. Yeah, I mean, we often hear about the cost of food, for example, in northern communities, but everything costs more, including the kind of clothes that you want to put on to, to stay warm and safe in a place like Callaway. Exactly. And then also because of the harsh climate, a lot of the things that would be like ideal here in Newfoundland just won't cut it up there. Yeah. Um, and so working with materials that are readily available like seal skin and other types of furs are actually the best things for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. And those animals evolved to, you know, stay warm in a harsh climate. So they make perfect materials for clothing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And Nicole is telling me how um, making clothes from these things like sealskin has this real um, cultural value to her. Um, in a lot of ways, it was just a natural thing for her to do. Inuit have made their own clothes for, you know, forever. <laughs> um, and so it just kind of evolved from there, you know. It's, it's just something that's been um, a part of me since I was a child. My mom and my aunt and my grandma all sewed for me and so it just kind of happens, I think. Um, you kind of learn um, how to make parkas and mitts and hats and ski pants and kameeks, um when you're growing up. And so when Nicole got older, she actually started making her own sealskin clothes. Um, and the way she talks about it, she tells me the story, and it sounds like such a rite of passage, like making this one piece of clothing really defined her becoming an adult. My first experience with it was probably when I was a um, little bit older, say in my 20s. I was making a pair of um, hunting mitts for a friend of mine. And the, the natural seal skin that I had was naturally tanned. So I had to chew it to get it soft enough to in order for the needle to get through and for it not to rip when I was sewing it. And I was really proud, you know, because I'm sitting there at my part-time job in Rankin Inlet and I'm sewing a pair of mitts that are, you know, um, so natural to a to an Inuk person to receive. Um, and I was proud to be sitting there chewing it. And I, I, I didn't mind, you know, as a 20-year-old to be chewing seal skin because it was so 
natural around me for for people to see that maybe because i'm thinking that maybe if i was south people would be like wow what does she do what is she chewing on and you know um, might have a different view of it but but when i was doing yeah. it in my 20s i was i was like no i, I i'm pretty proud of myself <laughs> that does sound like there's so much pride with telling that's that story that's fantastic and so that kind of talks about her own, that speaks to her own personal history with sealskin. Um, but how did she move from making the sort of everyday needed items that she sort of described at the beginning to sort of the statement style pieces that she makes these days? Well, that's kind of something that just happened on a whim. And somehow I had acquired, I think from my friend in Labrador, really low quality, like over-canned, over-processed sealskins. It, it would rip. It wouldn't last very long. And it's not something you would want to rely on when you're going out on the land. And then I had a pair of uh, boots that I bought, but I never wore. And they were just kind of in storage. And I thought, I wonder if I should try to put seal skin on. Because we're always trying to find new ways to use our seal skins, right? And so I put it on the, on these boots. Um, and I did a whole bunch of little... Um, little parts on it like you know the the ankle strap and then around the top and then a little accent heart and they turned out so cute um and it worked out so well that i thought i think i'm going to try with some stilettos really crazy like something that you wouldn't think that you would put seal skin on right wow <laughs> stilettos so did she do it yes she has this Facebook page with all of her shoes and jewelry on it, and she's made a couple pairs of stilettos. And they're these absolutely gorgeous pieces of art. Like, I am not a fancy shoe person. I am wearing hiking boots right now. <laughs> I don't own a pair of high heels, and I am absolutely in love with these. Yeah, that is so cool. I actually saw some of her work uh, in Ottawa several years ago when I was at a conference. You did not. I did. And I saw them in real life. And I also, uh, I saw another pair of shoes. I'm not sure if they were hers, but there was a similar context, con um, concept. They were like little Oxfords made out of sealskin. Oh, so yeah. I've actually kind of been coveting sealskin shoes for a while now. So sorry to be practical here, but... Um I imagine there is a rather limited market for high-heeled uh, sealskin shoes. I wouldn't bet on that. No? No, okay. they're beautiful and they're striking. And really, when you're buying a pair of fancy shoes, that's what you're, that's what you're looking for. Yeah. We're not here for being practical. It's a fall, <laughs> But she does also make things that are, I guess, more practical. So she has sealskin loafers um, for people who aren't really stiletto people. But then a lot of her shoes are like these really high fashion pieces. I love mm -hmm. it because I could totally see these styles being sold in, say, like Bay Street in Toronto. But they also have this really cool traditional element to them. I mean, they're covered in seal skin, which is this really kind of ancient material for Inuit people. And Nicole really blends these two old and new traditions together, both in the shoes and then also in her jewelry. We make a lot of earrings that are symbolic to my culture and things that people might appreciate, which they, I mean, ladies love those uluit, right? What is an uluit? Um, it's the plural word for ulu. Oh, thanks. That's really helpful. I know. I'm just messing with you. Um, Nicole actually had to explain it to me, too. But I'm going to let her say it because she can say it way better. An ulu is a woman's knife, and it's the... Um, it's like a semicircle with a handle on it, and we use it for everything. You know, back in the 
the olden days, <laughs> back in the like a long time ago, the, the women would use it for cutting all the seal skins, uh, for, for everything, to cutting meat, to, uh, to scraping the ice off the window of the igloo, like the, you know, it was, it was an essential tool, right? So Nicole is drawing from this symbolic thing that is the ulu and the uluit, um, and she's really incorporated it into her work. She makes earrings and brooches and necklaces all in the shape, and people love it. Uh, and so we know she's working with sealskin. Is she using some of those natural materials in the jewelry as well? Yes. And I'm super excited about this. They're all made from things. Um, because I grew up in the South, I never thought of making anything out of things like um, caribou antler and narwhal ivory and muskox horn. And my absolute favorite, I keep telling everybody about this, she worked with mammoth tusk. Oh my gosh. It's so cool. <laughs> now, that said, I am fully into it. But I can also see some people maybe taking issue with some of those uh, some of those mediums. Yeah, they do. And as a designer who works with them, sometimes she has to deal with occasional negativity and hate that mm. comes with these controversial-ish materials which are really just everyday materials in her context yeah and i think it really speaks to kind of the rural urban thing yeah because things that are totally normal in rural places and utilitarian just you don't see them you're not exposed to them in urban areas and so they become this taboo Mm. almost controversial talking Mm -hmm. point so sometimes i'll see on the facebook page um, and if you sometimes scroll through the comments, you'll even still see people say ivory. Isn't that bad? And I'm thinking, well, you're thinking of the wrong kind of ivory. These are not elephant ivory. This is ivory from, you know, from animals that we hunt and kill to eat for our our natural food. Right. Um, so, you know, you, people are still learning all the time. There was a most recent comment. I had just posted some some shoes that I was doing, and somebody said, "Oh, Bridget Bardot is going to curse you." And I thought, "Oh God, you guys! Like, I mean, it gets tiring having to educate people all the time. But sometimes people don't want to learn. They don't want to be educated. They want to be ignorant. I'm sorry, but I'm not trying to to sound mean. But they want to be oblivious. They just want to." They don't want to learn that these things are important to us, that we're not, you know, um, doing a mass slaughter just for the skins and, you know, leaving the meat out on it. It's not like that um, for us Inuit, right? So uh, so it's, it is nice to be able to educate um, people um, because they are still all learning and you want to be able to point them in the right direction. Like, no, this is all good and it's not bad. <laughs> Nicole has way more patience than I ever would. A lot of these attitudes come from so much ignorance that I don't even know where to start. I know. And it's been really tough for her. And I really feel for her because Inuit have sewn and worn sealskin since basically the beginning of time. And wearing sealskin is a real point of pride for her. I mean, mm-hmm. we think back to that story about how excited she was to be able to chew and make her first pair of sealskin mitts. And there's so much culture and so much history in that, just that action. And she's one of the people that are now on the front line of this really heated and controversial argument. And she didn't sign up for this. She didn't ask for it. She's just a designer. Mm. But um, because she's on the front line of the debate, 
she kind of really has to stand up for what she does and who she is every day of her life. Mm. For me, because I'm a human being, it depends on the day, on how I feel, on how much I want to educate somebody or how much I just want to say, you know what, figure it out on your own because I'm not here to be the one that has to educate you. I'm, it's not my job to do that. I can't imagine how frustrating and tiring it would be to always have to explain your culture, your way of life to people who are basically hostile. Yeah, and I guess it must also be really difficult because the people who are especially vocal about the issue really aren't looking for dialogue. They don't want to understand the Inuit culture and lifestyle. Their goal isn't to learn. No. No, they just want to talk. They just want to say what they want to say. And it becomes even more of an issue for Nicole when she comes south to those things like when you met her in Ottawa. Yeah. And she goes to urban places that are so far removed from this hunting lifestyle that is natural. Yep. Um, Nicole was telling me about a recent trip she took to Ottawa. I don't know if it was the one that she saw you on. But um, she brought sealskin boots, and then she also brought shoes without sealskin on them. Um, and she tells a story about she had to make this decision. But there was just one day I thought, I just, I don't feel like having to answer all the questions. I don't feel like people maybe saying hurtful things about sealskin. So I thought I'm just not going to bother to wear my shoes today because I I didn't feel like it that day to have to answer questions. Yeah, isn't it interesting that, you know, something that, you know, <laughs> Boyan, at the beginning of the episode, you said people do sometimes uh, dismiss fashion and suggest that it's sort of a silly thing that doesn't matter. But this is a situation where fashion is the forefront of um, the urban-rural divide, the north-south divide, and also some of the lack of understanding uh, in terms of people in the south and in indigenous people in this country. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I always thought was so cool about fashion. It's a way of representing yourself yeah. and where you're from and what you stand for. And so Nicole's pieces, both the sealskin shoes and the jewelry that she makes for Inuit, show pride in that culture. And they shouldn't have to feel attacked when they show that pride. Yeah. And also, I think there's a bridging element because people who are new to those cultures and that those those symbols and that tradition, that's a that's a way to learn as well and a way to engage with a culture. Has she found it difficult to connect in terms of selling outside of the the north? Yeah, she said it's been kind of a struggle to break out of that little bubble. But um, she doesn't really always feel that she needs to break out of it. She's getting pretty much all the support that she needs from fellow Inuit and people in rural and northern communities. And because she's a rural-based designer, it really helps her. And it kind of shows kind of like how you were talking about with your aunt, the benefit of being in these little places. Right. They sustain the businesses that they love. Yep. There's the aspect of knowing our market, you know, knowing the market to the people that we are most important to or that are most important to us. Um, Inuit totally appreciate, you know, almost all the Inuit totally appreciate sealskin because they're Inuit and it's a part of them and it's always been a part of them and it's in their blood. So people, Inuit and people that live up here, they love it, they want it, they want to wear it. Um, whereas maybe say if I had a business down South, um, I would have to probably educate people more on it. Um, and almost 
in, in this is how I picture it, almost have to um, educate them about it and then let them think about it and then kind of change their mind, change their mind or get them to think a different way about it. Seal skin, that is. Mm-hmm. Whereas people here, um, people in in Nunavut, um, they already know. They they know that they want it. That's so interesting. And these are some of the really good things about operating a business like this in a Norton and a rural community. What are some of the harder things about running a business in such an isolated area? Well, some of the main things she pointed out to me were like logistical things. Um, high cost of shipping, cost of getting actual shoes because she doesn't make the base of the shoes, she covers them in the seal skin. And so getting those original shoes to her is really expensive. Mm-hmm. And then also shipping out the finished products gets really expensive. And so it just tacks on price points. And that's hard for people. I mean, they are luxury items, mm-hmm. but also you don't want to be adding $100 for shipping because of these things. Um, and then also the hard thing is the ever-present broadband issue in rural areas. And that would sound very familiar to Liz Coho and to a whole bunch of other people we talked about when we talked about rural broadband. Yeah. Yeah. And also since Nicole's business is an online business, this is a really big problem. Um, when the connection's bad, there, there's a bunch of overage charges and it just makes it really difficult to run her business. Um but you know what? Um, she's able to look past all of that because she really loves what she does. She's making a difference to her culture, and it really speaks to her. Our, you know, our contemporary art is uh, is making a difference to somebody. It might be just one person, like there's this mother. Um, her young five year old daughter wanted the same pair of um, earrings as her and I, they're so happy and proud to be walking around and wearing their earrings. And I thought that's so sweet because they're such proud Inuit, right? Um, so I like that. I like that there's people that are, you know, proud to wear something that, um, something that they feel is Inuk, right? (laughs) That's such a sweet story. It really is. And I really like how Nicole refers to her pieces as contemporary art, because really, if you're looking at these shoes and at this jewelry, it's really what it is. It's such fine detail and artistic flourishes that I couldn't do in a million years. Um, And they're really, they're eye-catching. They're not utilitarian necessarily, but they say something and they make you feel something, which is what art does. And I also like how these pieces also help people really showcase the cultural pride that they feel in where they're coming from. Exactly. Um, And so right before I got off the phone with Nicole, I was asking her what she wanted people in the South and in urban areas particularly to take away from this discussion because we don't usually get to have a dialogue between rural and urban North and South in this way very often. And this is what she told me. I mean, if you do have Southern, and mostly these are Southern people listening to this, um, I think that, you know, people need to uh, to do some research on the seal hunt and um, why it's important to us. And maybe even watch the movie Angry Inuk to get some insight on um, seal skin and, um, and all that stuff, right? Because then it just gives a little bit... Uh, it, it educates, uh, oh God, 
educates people just a little bit more um, and gives them some insight into all of this. And I think that would be great for, for people to understand it more. And I just want to take a second to say that I completely support the plug for Angry Anuk that she put in there. It's this amazing documentary about the relationship between Inuit people and sealing and seal skin and the real controversy that might be on the forefront of a lot of people's minds when they're listening to this piece. Um, it's online and they were playing it on CBC and I think it'll give a lot of background if you have questions. Wow. This turned into an interesting episode. We spoke with Liz Cahoe and her colleagues at her hat factory, Lillian Cahoe in Nelson, BC. You also told us about Tracy Fillion, also from Nelson, and her mobile store. Yeah, and online too. And online too. And I should say, we are stories. Google it and and buy something nice. Yeah, I think we can put the links on the website. I think we'll need to, yeah. Yeah, we need to. So look below, there will be website links. And Rebecca Nolan brought us the story of Inuk designer Nicole Campog based in Iqaluit. Thank you for that. It's been great to have you work with us on the last couple of episodes. It's been great to be with you guys. I love <laughs> what we're doing. I love that we tell stories that are deep and interesting and that matter. Uh, so you just listened to another episode of Rural Roots, a Harris Center show that asks, what is rural in the 21st century? Rural Roots is a partnership between the Harris Centre at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador, the Canadian Revital of Rural Revitalization Foundation, and the Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership. We record this show at the CHMR Campus Radio at Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's. You can hear Rural Roots through our website, ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's rural, R-O-U, tespodcasts.com or you can find us on your favorite podcasting app. You can also hear us on community and campus radio stations across the country. If you'd like your station to carry Rural Roots, just let them know and they can find us on the Campus and Community Radio Program Exchange or they can get in touch with us directly. So that is the end of another episode. I am Rebecca Cahoe and I'm Rebecca Nolan <laughs> and I'm Brian Fist. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.